Well, good morning, Grace. Thanks for joining us any way you can. And I, I, you saw that Rebecca McLaughlin is coming to Grace Covenant Church on February 13th. And uh, we had a meeting last week and it was a unanimous decision that that counts as part of a Valentine's date. If you come on that day, that'll count as a date. There, was, there wasn't a single woman in the room when we made that decision, but man, it sounded like a good one to me. So you'll be glad you came. Uh, you can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12 if you want. I'll meet you there. Today, I'll just, I'll put it out there. This is the most important 35 minutes of your life. For many of you right now listening to me, this will be the most important moment in your entire eternal existence. That's not a bad introduction. Uh, we're in a series right now called Reboot, and we're on our third week. And um, we just want to like, I don't know, start the year right, and sometimes maybe just start over the whole like do over. Let's start life over again. And so uh, we were like, okay, wh- where do we go to figure out how to do that? And, and the, the theme of the whole series is, is like how to, to, to think and live biblically in the culture, right? We're not, we're not the type of church that runs from the culture. So it's think and live biblically in the culture courageously. That's the theme. It's like how to, so we've got to get strong and reboot and change the way we're maybe living and thinking. And the passage we've been going to for the last few weeks now is Romans uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And if it's, this theme is life change, then that's where you'd go. These two sentences will tell you a lot about life change because the, they're declarations from Paul that says you've got to stop thinking wrong. You've got to think right. And you got to do right, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So that's why we're going there. And today we're going to emphasize <clears throat> a different section of those two sentences. Let's look at the passage and you'll see the part we'll spend our time on today. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, logical service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So this week, you can see in the, in the letters there, in red letters, that we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's what it says, but what does that mean? What does that mean in the way we're supposed to be perceiving reality? What does that phrase mean? And for, sometimes it'd be easy to teach this passage to kind of a narrow group of people and you could focus on transform your mind on this one topic. But since we're talking about kind of the whole, the big picture of things, what I wanted to do today is transform your mind to like the bigger picture. Uh, You need to take, transform your mind from what you think about to what God has declared to be what is right and real and true and beautiful. And if his definitions are different than yours, you need to change your definitions to what is right and real and true and beautiful. And again, we're gonna, I'm going to look at the bigger picture of things. Uh, and then, you know, later studies would help us get to more specifics. But this is the big story of, of the human experience. This is to make sense of all human history and the future of things to come. It's the macro story, the macro truths that we're supposed to transform our, li- transform our minds to look like. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go through a a section of declarative truthful principles, but I want you to see that they're not 
in isolation and disconnected to one another. They actually build on each other. It looks like it's chronological and somewhat it is, but it's, it's also a logical order of sequences. And they're supposed to form a worldview. And a worldview is the way our, our minds filter all of reality. It's the way we perceive the existence around us and how we kind of, quote, make sense out of, in this case, the human story. History of humanity, where we are right now, individually, but also collectively, and what the future looks like for us. So that's the big picture here. And so we're supposed to transform by, our, by renewing our minds to these thoughts, these values, these perceptions of reality to bring them in into harmony with God. All right. So the first principle is kind of a a priori statement of, of where to start. And that is that we're starting with the Bible alone as our source of authority on spiritual things. Probably only, at least in my mind, there's probably just two absolute sources of authority. Uh, One would be math and one would be the Bible. So I know the math is a trigger word for some of you. So if you could just let that go and come back and we're just going to talk about the Bible, I won't mention math again. In the context of the Bible, that is the absolute authority of defining who God is and what he's done and what the plan is. And there's a lot of reasons to come to that conclusion. And I talked a little bit about that last week, and there's a lot more. But I'm just saying we've got to transform our minds in the way that we think about the Bible only as our source of knowing God and how to practice uh, the Christian faith. So at Grace here, we don't care much about church history whether it's Catholic or Protestant, uh, we, another application to the Bible alone is, and, and its authority is we don't necessarily have to like what the Bible says and sometimes not even agree with what the Bible says. Our job as followers of the Bible alone is to humbly and graciously and generously obey what God has declared to be true. So that's what it means why Bible alone. And when we settle that as our source of where we get our worldview, then we can move forward and hear more about what, what God has for us. And what, what happens when you put these declarative truths about the nature of reality together, they become a creed. And in a wonderful book by Dorothy Sayers uh, entitled uh, Creed or Chaos, she comes to the conclusion that you, you live under a creed or you live with chaos. And today what we're gonna do is we're gonna survey these major topics and we're gonna find ourselves coming up with a creed and we'll recite that creed together. Here's the first principle built on the idea that the Bible alone is our source of, of authority knowing about God and his nature. The first truth that we live our worldview around is this, that we believe in one God, the almighty maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. By definition, this is faith, Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed by God's command, just says it, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. In other words, God made things out of nothing. He created just ex nihilo, out of nothingness. And when we apply that fact to our lives, if we transform our And if we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, when our minds are renewed that God is the creator of all things, just by speaking it, we come to the theology term called sovereign, that God is sovereign. And what that means is he's so infinitely powerful 
to create all things, but also it means that he can change anything within his creation. And it, it means that he has a plan and he has a way to make sure that plan comes to fruition. And he, and the last thing the word sovereign means, not just plan and the power to do it, it means that he rules, that he owns everything. And a person that has had their mind transformed and renewed by this fact, they live with a sense of tranquility. There's a sense of ease in their life. When they, when they look around and they wonder about what's happening right in front of them, they know this to be true because of the promises of God, that there will be justice and there will be equity and there will be salvation coming. The two things you, two topics that you know about the sovereignty of God is that justice will come. And the second thing a person that believes this to be true is knowing that there is a celebration at the end of all time, that there's a purpose for time and history, and it, and it culminates in this answer, the ultimate answer to the ultimate prayer of, a reign, of the reigning king, ultimate answer to the ultimate prayer that we would obey on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what will happen. So a person that believes this first principle is not worried about current events, even something like a world war or a rumor of war. From there, after creating all things, the second thing we need to know and understand is that God created man in his image. God created, man was created in the image of God. And by that, the Bible uses the word righteous, means perfect, without, without flaw. And so the, I mean, an application there is, it's very easy to stop and wonder why would God create like this chaos, you know, like the man that does this and is so evil. And the answer is, he didn't create man that way. Man was created in the very image of God, which leads us to like the obvious next step. God created everything. Man was righteous in his, in his creation. And the third thing that we need to know is that man sinned and hopelessly, look at that word, hopelessly fell out of God's favor. Hopelessly fell out of God's favor. In God's dealing uh, with mankind, there's a word in theology called federalism. And federalism is the belief that one, two people can represent all of that, of that, I don't know, creation, right? So, so Adam and Eve, the point is Adam and Eve, Adam particularly, was a federalist representative of all of mankind. Whatever he did, we lived with. That happens two times, particularly in the Bible, this federalism, and that is Adam, represents all mankind, and Jesus, the Christ, and he's called the second Adam. He's called that because he's going to have federalist implications to what he chooses to do. In the story we're talking about right here, though, we see that Adam chose, like out of freedom like no one has ever had since then, but he chose to reject God, to, be, to depend upon God, to trust in God's promises and his nature and his character. And in his sin, that's the word for it in the Bible, in his sin, depravity enters all of mankind because we're all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And in that sin, we get guilt and shame and weakness. And every descendant from Adam and Eve on has had those attributes, they inherit them. When Adam sins, death enters the world. Death rules the world. And we're talking about immediately the death to the spirit takes place. Our body is on a terminal, you know, destiny towards the grave. And then our souls are bent. 
demented. It's hard to think and feel right. War. <laughs> war dominates our history. There's someone who said the history of man is the history of war because that's what takes place when men and women are depraved. There's a war against God always. There's a war against others. There's a war within ourselves. There's a war with nature. Death and war now define the human existence. When Paul writes about this attribute of, of, of total depravity that we inherit, he just surveys a lot of Older Testament sentences. I'll just survey that for you. That's found in Romans chapter 3. It starts in verse 10 and just goes, goes. Look what it says. As it is written, excuse me, there's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat, there's an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet, they're swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and their way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The idea is that when we come into the presence of God, we bring nothing of moral value. That even when we do something mildly good, it is contaminated by some kind of self-serving angle on things. Now, parenthetically, we are still in the remnant of that image of God. In other words, we, we still on, take on attributes of God in that we... The, the, the human soul is, has infinite value compared to any other created thing. Uh, we still have the remnant of God in that we are still creative and, and industrious. We're in the image of God. God is creative and industrious. And it, it, it shows up in our ability to love and show charity to one another. So there's this echo from Eden of where we used to be, what we used to be like. But in the context of morality, we bring nothing to that. And when we're, when we're renewing our minds and transforming our thoughts to this truth, absolute and complete depravity, I find it's easy to show up in parenting. What I find interesting is sometimes, uh, like a school an elementary school teacher will tell you that he or she believes in total depravity. I mean, the kids are cute and all that stuff, but oh yeah, you turn your back on them long enough, they'll burn the building down. And, and a good school teacher, she'll run that class with the idea of total depravity, no matter how cute the skirts are. And it's managed well. What's interesting, I have found is that same school teacher goes home and she looks at her little baby and says, oh, but this is different. And that little kid runs wild with way too much freedom. And it's based on her thinking, well, my little girl couldn't be that bad. And I'm just saying an appreciation for total depravity is looking at parenting in, with this in mind, that there is nothing, there's none righteous, not even one. And I can uh, honestly had trouble with the, the whole thing with, with, with other people not treating their kids this way until I had a little grandbaby and I thought, man, this little girl is sugar and sweet and everything nice and all that stuff. And I'm like, that girl is going to just obey God. This is one, this is the exception. And then you just wait 10 minutes and then, yeah, there's the other side of that little, 
She's like, you know what she's saying right then? She said, well, I don't know how to talk right now, but when I do, I'm gonna, I got a lot to say about the way you've been running things so far. And I'm, gonna, I'm already in charge of a couple of you and I'm gonna run this house soon. Just saying it happens a lot. One of the applications for total depravity is the idea that every institution, if you believe is to be true, if your mind's transformed, every institution needs to have a checks and balance to it. Our, you know, the United States Republic is built on that value that no one can have too much power. But even in parenting, I mean, the reason I think a lot of parenting, when the husband and wife, the father and mother are both in the household together, there's, there, right, there's this checks and balance. But in parenting and the judicial system and the government, but, but like, uh, businesses, <laughs> when one person is in charge, churches, that happens a lot. When one person is in charge and there's no checks and balance and accountability, it's just, a, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. Because anytime, every time, when man is left unaccountable, it is only... It's the, the depravity just needs to show itself in some way that expresses self-service and the abuse of that power. That's because of total depravity. I, I think a, a third way of applying this essential doctrine is about every hundred years, and we're coming up on it soon, every hundred years or so, the collective thought is that man can be perfected. You know, given enough science and, you know, accidentals, these are the words of uh, uh, Dorothy Sayers in Creeds or Chaos, uh, we, we given enough, you know, with science and, and accidental, what she calls accidental evolution, man will find himself per perfected. And she speaks of that, which is what led to the Second World War, because man is just on the brink of perfection. If you believe this doctrine to be true, you'll believe this. That every time we come up with a life-saving medicine, it's just a matter of time before we use that same medicine <laughs> to destroy the world. It's just the way we've been bent. So all of sin, all have fallen away from the glory of God. And this is a hopeless predicament that we find ourselves in because we can't fix it. Which leads us to our next point. And it's this that only a gift from Yahweh can fix this. It's the idea of grace, gift and grace are the same word. It's the idea that grace alone, only some, an outside, only God can do this. Only God can make this right and it has to be a gift because we can't afford what it costs to fix this. It's that big of a gift. And just to be absolutely clear, God is not obligated to get us out of the circumstances that we put ourselves in. In other words, the goodness of God doesn't mean he's required to do something about this. Somewhere in this, the prayer of the depraved says, God, you have to step in. And, and for 2,000 years, men and women longed for the red letter sentence, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. God, in his motive of love, has decided to enter our fray. It'd have to be a gift. It would have to be a gift from Yahweh. It's not our works. This says in Titus 3, 5. Watch, watch how it says what it is and what it's not. Christ saved us, not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of God's mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Let me put it another way. This gift from God, 
the gospel. The gospel is the greatest manifestation of the attributes of God that could ever be imagined. The gospel is the greatest manifestation of the attributes of God that could ever be imagined. And here's why. Because the the gospel answers the divine dilemma that philosophers and theologians and angels have been perplexed about for thousands of years. How does God get out of this divine dilemma? And the dilemma is this, that how could God be just and give mercy to the wretched? If he just lets people go, then he's no longer just. If he's just, he can't let them go. What's he going to do? What can he do about that? Well, the gospel answers that question. It's summarized in Romans chapter 3, 22 through 26. Here's what Paul says. We are given, there's the gift, we are given the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for whom all, for all who believe. There's no distinction, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are justified, made righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood to be received by faith. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that Yahweh God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can God, Yahweh, the great righteous and holy God be just and justifier? Here's how. He makes sure that the gift is payment in full for the crimes against God and so that that debt is paid and those people are set free. In other words, no one gets off, no one gets away with it. The debt's paid. The gift, the grace, when we talk about gift alone, grace alone, let me make sure, I'm I'm gonna summarize it right here. This is that gift, I'm gonna explain. This is what we're talking about when we say grace alone or gift alone, it's pointing to a man. This is it. This This is how we restore righteousness. The gift is Jesus the Christ, who was fully God and fully man, the Bible says. And that's why it's Jesus alone, because no one else qualifies for that. He needed to be fully God and fully man, what we call the second Adam, federalism again. We're going to inherit what he is like. Okay. He had to be born perfect. He did. But he had to live a perfect life without sin. He did. Born perfect, living perfect qualifies him, what the passage says, qualifies him to be an atoning payment, blood sacrifice, for the wrath of God. This is the gift, the perfect man climbing upon that cross volitionally to take on our sin, our curse, our shame, so that the holy hatred of God could focus down and destroy body, soul, and spirit and innocent so that the guilty would have their debts paid. Wrath of God was poured out upon him Did it work? Did it take? The resurrection is proof that those promises were fulfilled. Without a resurrection, we could always just be wondering, I hope, I hope. But the resurrection says, no, there was a great exchange that took place in those moments. What happened just then was he took on our sin and we inherited his righteousness. He, he, he took on our shame, a shameful way of dying, so that we would not be shamed. We receive his honor. It, it, it means that 
He became weak and vulnerable like us so that we could inherit the Holy Spirit and be strong and courageous. And in that, that gift of Jesus and his actions on the cross and the resurrection, that is how God becomes both just and the one who justifies. In grace alone, in the gift alone, having that faith alone. So, so that's what the gift is. So the next little truth that goes along with that, now that we know what the gift is, here we go. Faith alone in the gift alone. The faith alone in the gift of God, and that gift of God is Christ alone. You have to have faith in that set of truths. In other words, you can't just believe it to be true. You got to have, you have to trust your soul for it. Let me take it out of the spiritual so it's a little easier. Uh, faith means trust. It means it's making an obligation to something that has consequences. And there has to be, this is important, there has to be an object of that faith. Like what is the faith pointing exactly to? So those two attributes, it has to be of consequence and it has to, there has to be an object. So right now you are having mostly faith in the chair you're sitting in, right? There's a there's an obligation, right, with consequence, and, and uh, there's an object, the, the chair itself. So what, what we want to do is everybody pick your feet up off the ground. Okay. Now there's nothing to catch you, not that your feet would do much anyway, but now that's like 100% physical faith in the chair. That's a, of consequence, and there's an object to that. So that's just a, like helpful. So when we say you have to have faith alone, so could we just say you have faith alone in God? Yeah, no, you can't, because that's too vague in general, just to have faith in God. Faith has to have an object, and the object has to be specific. So it has to be not just in the nature of God, but in in the promise that he made. And the promise that God made was that the gift was adequate to quench the wrath of God. So you're actually putting your faith in the promise of God. Do you see that? It's not just God. And it's in the promise of God. Faith, trust, uh, belief, hope. These are all action words that have life change attached to them. And, and so how, how does it work? I'm believing in the promise of God and therefore my life is completely altered. If it's not altered, I'm not believing. Let me give you an example that's somewhat in the Bible that I've updated so that maybe it's a little easier for us to to grasp. Okay. Uh, let's just say for some reason, I've got three years to live and I come to you and go to dinner and I say, you know what? I'm going to will you $10 million. You're going to inherit $10 million from me in three short years. You're welcome. So if you have faith in that inheritance, it looks like this. The object of the faith is generally me at the beginning. And that is Uh, Am I trustworthy? Do I keep my promises? Sure, that'd be a factor. Do I have $10 million to give you? (laughs) I mean, that would be a thing, right? Yeah. And then, but ultimately the specific faith that you would have would be that you willed me $10 million. That you made a promise to that fact. To me. That's what faith, that's why inheritance is one of the metaphors that they use in the Bible. Jesus Christ says, you will inherit my righteousness. That's the, that's the whole thing in there. And so if you, if you have this promise for me for $10 million in three years, and you're living your life as a miser, 
If you're, if you're like, keep planning and sending all your money ahead, I have to have enough for retirement, and I'm not sure this is going to be enough, yada, 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 right? And you're fidgety and you're living that way. That means you don't have faith in the promise. See, again, the power of faith is like you ought to be relaxed about things that are promised. And the thing that is promised is like in three years, you're going to have more than enough to retire on. If I were you, this is what faith looks like. It looks kind of dumb. If I were you, I'd evacuate some of your retirement and go to Paris. I'd see the world because all that stuff that you were saving for before, it's not necessary. A person that lives by faith lives in a way that doesn't make sense to people that don't live on the promise, in the certain promises of God. So now with that in mind, the application here, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In faith alone, in the grace, the promise of this gift alone that is, in fact, Jesus Christ alone. That is to be applied in two different ways. We're supposed to apply it to our salvation and we're supposed to apply it to our, what's called sanctification, our becoming like Christ in all of life. In other words, this is how you enter the kingdom of God. This is how you become a child of God. It is by grace. It's by a gift. You can't work your way there. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter two. It is for by, it's for by grace, the gift that you've been saved by faith. Look how repetitive this is. And it's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, not a result of your works so that no one would boast. Grace, faith, gift. That's how it works. You know how it doesn't work? What does it say? Not of yourselves, not a result of your works that you should be boasting about. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. <laughs> Part two, the most neglected, non-taught truth in the American church today, that's not me, that's some really smart guy that I studied under, single most neglected passage in the New Testament, that that same method of salvation applies to becoming like Christ in all of life. Grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. Look, let me just say it this way. The way to become Christ's child is the same way you become God's perfect child. The way you become Christ's child, God's child, is the same way you become God's perfect child. It doesn't change after you're in the family. Now get to work. And that's what happens in so many churches today. Wow, you walk up the aisle, you become a believer. Now get busy. And if you're not busy, you ought to feel guilty because that's what the Christian life is. Wait, just keeping busy till Jesus comes back. But Paul says in Galatians chapter three, he says, you foolish Galatians, you foolish American Christians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Are you so foolish? Yeah, he's calling us out. Having begun by the spirit, are you now perfecting by the flesh? <laughs> Are you, are you going to become like Christ in all of life by works? No, he's saying this. The way you become like Christ is, as a, is a desperate cry for God's gift to intervene again. How do you get, up, get rid of the lust and the temper and the fear that's in your soul? You're going to have to cry out to God. And it's going to have to be God's grace, this gift that he gives you. And then you'll overcome that. And we're not trying to, you come to this church, you'll hear stories. We're not trying to get you busy. We're trying to get you to come to the terms that you can't earn this. Faith alone, salvation and sanctification, it is through faith alone in that promise of the gift that is Christ Jesus. 
It applies to salvation and sanctification. So we have to transform our mind and say it's that, it's all of that and nothing else. When we talk about it in the context of justification, when we become saved, okay, that righteousness. If we say, I want to, I'm going to receive this gift and then I'm going to do a little more after that so that God will like me. You're showing contempt for the gift, Jesus Christ. You're saying that walk to Golgotha and that beating and that death was not enough to pay for your sins. So you're going to have to add a little something, something. And you've just lost the gift. You're insulting the gift and you've taken it away. In, in the context of salvation, if we say, okay, I've received that as a gift and now I'm going to work, it's, it's, it's gift plus works so that like I can be approved by God and I can approve, be approved by the church or my other friends or whatever it might be. If you, if you receive a gift and then you pay for that gift later, right, then you, it's not a gift. It, you just put it on layaway. It's like, and it doesn't, that's not how it works. So again, if like in the context of anger, hopefully if you're around here long enough, you're like, well, part of the discipleship model here is to push people into a place where they give up trying harder and they cry out again. This is Paul in Romans chapter seven. Well, I can't, I can't stop doing the things I don't want to do. Who will save this wretched man from his flesh? And his answer is the grace of God only faith in that grace only. And that is Jesus Christ. So here's the big ask today. Are you going to transform your mind in what your core beliefs are and how to become a, a, a believer and how to grow as a believer? I mean, you need to alter. So many of us are from, from so many different church backgrounds. This is Christianity. This is the definition of that. Choosing biblical Christianity living your whole life around the fact that you received a gift and it wasn't meritorious, that, that your debts against God are paid in full. And now you can enjoy intimacy with God and a, and a, and a relationship with God that's going back and forth, the spirit of God living inside of you. And so it's, it's a life of rest and tranquility, lacks anxiety. And generally you're you're giving grace to everyone around you because it's overflowing. You're not one to hold grudges. You're one to give. You're one to, you're free. And the motive that a real Christian that, whose mind has been transformed, it's been renewed to believe in these things, grace alone, in salvation and sanctification. These people are not motivated. Listen, they're not motivated in their love for God. It would seem that. I mean, in light of all that God's done for us, we would, in, in our love, we would love, we would do things. If you look at New Testament saints, if you see what motivates them, they'll say they're not motivated by their love for God. They're motivated by their love from God. Because these men and women that are writing know that their love is fickle and is one change in the wind and they'll lose that. Obedience Real, long-term, difficult obedience comes from a deepening appreciation for God's love for us. So, this is saving faith. It's when you say living by faith, trust, whatever, is, is a, a bit of a gamble. It's like gambling. And it's just saying, I'm taking my soul and spirit, my eternal fate, and I'm putting it 
because I believe the Bible to be true, and I'm putting it on, on this one, like, number. I'm thinking roulette. This one number. Everything. I go to hell if I get this wrong or just, I don't know, disappear in nothingness. And it is in Jesus Christ, that gift, that he died and was raised. And I'm putting all of my faith in that and that alone, nothing else. That the nature of God is one that he makes promises and keeps promises. And this promise is that I'll spend eternity with him and have intimacy with him between now and then. So, but what are you going to do? I'm asking you to make a choice for salvation for some of you, sanctification for others. You never heard that you become like Christ by grace through faith. Make those, I'll explain that a little bit more next week. You got to transform your mind. The storyline of creation, logically and chronologically, is God created all things, made man in his image without without flaw, man sinned and became hopelessly depraved and unable to have intimacy with God. God in his love for us mercifully gets us out of that through a gift and only the gift and the gift is complete. And we believe in that gift, faith alone in that gift alone, which is Christ alone. That's the story so far. The last truth that we need to hold on to is this, that there's an end to this story. And this truth is just like the, what we've studied before. It is a truth, but it's also in, in, in historical, chronological order. The way this ends is two things are promised throughout the Bible, justice and a celebration. Justice that everyone will answer for what they've said, done, and what motivated them. And the Old and the New Testament is called the Day of the Lord. It's a scary event. The other thing that's promised absolutely is a wonderful creation celebration of a new reigning king. It's a wedding feast. And God, not wanting any to perish, wants as many people at that event as possible. That's what it looks like. That's the big story all along. That's, look what it says in Romans, or I'm sorry, in Revelation chapter 22. <laughs> no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and, and the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will see his face. Can you imagine? And his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no more night. They won't need a, a light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Those are the promises of God that fit together with a worldview and knowing how it ends is going to make a decision on how we live right now. Let me pause. Like it. Watch. Knowing these doctrinal truths that fit into a worldview, watch how it alters our existence right now. Look, let's look at 12.2 again. And do not be conformed to this world, okay? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Get along board with God has already declared to be true so that, there's a cause effect here, so that you could prove what the will of God is which, is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. People wonder all a lot of like, what is the will of God? Well, it starts here on the macro level. This is how it starts. These things that are true, God wants all people to be ending up at that wedding party. Our job between now and then is to participate in this jet stream of what he's already declared to be his will. 
right? In other words, we need to get on board with what God's doing, and then you're going to be in his will. God's will in the context of what we talked about today, big, wide, super highway, right? How do we fit in? We find out what our lane is. The way God made us, the experiences we've had in life, positive or negative, all of those working its way towards all the good works that Christ has arranged for each and every one of us to do for his glory before the beginning of time. What do we do between now and then? We find out what those good works in Christ are. And we do those. We, we do it together. That's the will of God. That's the thoughts of God that we're supposed to renew our minds and think about. All those fit together to become a creed. Didn't seem like a, any other way to end our time together today than to have everyone stand and recite what's called the Nicene Creed. Let me tell you a little bit about this. Uh, it's, some of you might know this already. It's kind of like the Apostles' Creed with some things added because things changed over time. And the Nicene Creed, I want you to read out loud with us. If there's something that we read that you don't believe, don't say it because you don't believe it. Second, know this, that one of the lines in here is going to be that we believe in one holy uh, Catholic, Catholic and apostolic church. Please note that the word Catholic is not capitalized. When it's capitalized, it means the Roman Catholic church. When it's not capitalized, the word Catholic means universal, means this global church, okay? So when you're confessing that in your creed, you, you're not confessing to be Roman Catholic. All right? Well, let's stand up and agree to these things that have been declared to be true. This is a summary of that. We'll read it out loud together. Ready? Here we go. We believe in one God, Father the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, all seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, who was begotten, not made, one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. Man, and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. According to scripture, he ascended into heaven. He seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. It proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And all God's people said, amen. amen. That's true. I believe those things. I'll transform my mind to meet those parameters and live my life accordingly. Let's pray. Lord, we first of all celebrate the Bible and your <laughs> second most loving gift to mankind was words of truth so we might know absolutely what is right and real and true in the things that are seen and unseen from the very mind of the creator. And from that, we come to these realizations. And I'd ask, Lord, that you would puncture our minds as to when we are out of line with these fundamental facts 
about who you are, the way we were made, the way we're bent, and how, to, how you saved us from that. But not just to become yours, but to become like you. Help us understand that, grasp that, and apply that in our lives. Lord, let us be a church that is famous for its grace. It's grace and mercy for salvation, and it's grace and mercy as we help each other become like Christ in all of life. Who will save me, this wretched man that I am? The gift of the Holy Spirit. That's, so, Lord, we pray this, ask this, and enjoy your presence into our life. And until that coming kingdom, we'll live for you because you loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.